All right, welcome to MBA's Unplugged. I'm your host, John Ford. I am still hosting the podcast, even though I have been expelled from school for the faculty jokes at 100 days, uh, but they can't take the podcast from me. I will miss you all at graduation, though. Our guest today is April Benayan. Welcome, April. Hi, guys. So April is a special part of our class because she is both an MBA student and an MD student. She's doing a dual degree. I wanted to have her on to uh, give everybody a little bit of insight into what some of our dual degree classmates are doing and going through and how their experience might be a little different uh, from our experience, aside from the fact that they will have substantially more debt. Uh, so April, let's, uh, let's start with your background a little bit. Where are you from? So I'm from LA, not too far from USC uh, in Brentwood. You grew up in Brentwood your whole youth? I was in Brentwood most of my life, and then I moved to like the West Hollywood, Beverly Hills area to be closer to my parents' work. What was your parents' work? So they are very untraditional. They have like a liquor and gourmet food store, um, and I've had it for like 30 years. So um, I grew up kind of working at their store like on holiday breaks, especially during Christmas time. They get super busy with gifts and stuff, and um, it's in West Hollywood. So moving closer was ideal. Got it. And um, a lot of people who go into the medical field, I feel like they have parents who are doctors and they're sort of shepherded into that. Uh, when did you get a sense that you might want to be in medicine as a career? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I think there was a survey of half of my medical school class and um, half of them had at least one parent that, it's a, that is a physician. So it's very common, like you say, to kind of have that example. And I didn't have really any family going uh, or in medicine sans like one of my mom's cousins. But for me, I it was kind of the thing I always said when I was, you know, people, they only ask you when you're five years old, like, what are you going to be? And people will say like, you know, like astronaut or firefighter. Like I always said doctor, but at the beginning, I'm like, like any kid, you don't really know what that entails. And it's kind of a joke. Um, but for me, I was really always interested in, in sciences and I also really like people. I think that comes from working in my parents' store and customer service. Like I loved that kind of interaction. And so it kind of solidified for me in college after volunteering and shadowing and stuff that medicine was the way I could bring those two passions together. When you were a, a very small kid and you were saying you wanted to be a doctor, but didn't really know what that meant. In your mind, what was the job? I think for me, it just being Persian, it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, the three careers that they they talk about. And I there's actually a video of me in fourth grade um, being interviewed about like my autobiography that I wrote for myself. And I I think I said I want I thought about being a lawyer, but I can defend people that are not innocent. <laughs> so somewhere in that mentality is where that came out. And then I think just the idea of being able to help people and um, like take care of things, um, whether you're like, you know, on a remote island or whatever it is, I think like that kind of adventure side of it also appealed to me. Um, but I really have a hard time putting myself in my shoes in my five-year-old shoes, but I think that that's kind of where the logic came from. Do you feel like the job is, is dramatically different than maybe you imagined it when you were thinking about being a doctor in maybe high school, when you probably had a little better idea what it would be like? Definitely. 
I think the biggest difference is being really aware of how much of medicine isn't just the science and like the clinical aspects of it, but it's a lot of kind of dealing with the societal and social structures that are in place to kind of lead people to being uh, in the environment where they need this kind of care, especially working at a public hospital. And so I think what thing, one thing that really changed for me and uh, influenced the kinds of things I decided to study was an awareness of how much your social health and like your, so the societal factors of, you know, your social, social economic class or um, the zip code you're in affects your health. How did you get exposed to that side of it? Was it just being in medical school or did you uh, seek out experiences that might sort of broaden your view of the kind of patients that you're seeing? Yeah, so when I was an undergrad, my major was called health promotion and disease prevention, um, which is essentially public health. And so through those courses, I got exposure to like the social determinants of health um, and things like how much sidewalks in a neighborhood affect people's health and um, what a food desert is, which is essentially kind of what we had at USC before the village was open, which is that there wasn't like a grocery store, you couldn't get vegetables nearby unless you took like two different buses and how all that kind of influences the types of diseases we have in the Western world. And so um, kind of not only studying about it, but then seeing it as soon as I walked outside of the walls of USC um, was really impactful for me and kind of shaped um, what I decided to focus on in my studies afterwards and in medical school. Speaking of USC, you are about to be, as soon as you graduate, a quadruple Trojan. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what the record is offhand for most degrees from the University of Southern California? You got to be in the running. I, I would imagine that I'm close. I have yeah. a <laughs> there's somebody that's done more i'm trying to but, imagine the kind of person who would get five degrees from usc yeah it's kind of a bit crazy there is a logic behind the madness i swear okay um but Wait for me let me know what it yeah. is so the master's degree i pursued before doing med school and business school was a master's in global medicine um, and that was a progressive degree from studying the public health that I had learned about. And the reason I did that was I was really involved with um, this organization on campus called Project Rishi that does um, help trips to India to kind of work on sustainable initiatives with like sanitation and water and all these things. And I got really interested in, in global health and thought that I wanted that to be a really big part of my career. And this master's degree was offered and it was kind of like a fast track way of learning more about it. And also like a great thing to kind of um, expose me to different um, parts of healthcare, whether it was like PAs and PTs and people that were kind of pre all these different professions, um, which I thought would be a great experience to learn from before entering med school. So I decided to pursue the master's and it was awesome. I got to like work with the UN and um, make a trip to New York and a trip to Switzerland and um, just like learn more about how the rest of the world practices medicine. And, and it's vastly different and in my opinion, often better. Um, but it was a really, really like incredible learning experience. And from there, the, we can probably we'll go into more of like the MD, MBA route, but it kind of evolved and one degree spun off another. I have double counted many classes for multiple degrees. So I've gotten away with, with that, which helps. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's kind of the backstory. So you said that some of these countries do things better than the United States. What are some of the things that we ought to be doing here that they're doing in other places that 
would be smart if we did it here. Yeah. So for example, um, the health records in America are like, I've, I'm sure you've tried to like get your records from one hospital because a doc, different doctor needs it. And kind of the transfer of all that information is really, really poorly done here. But for example, in Japan and Taiwan, everybody kind of has their health record on like a, a, a drive. And so when you go to a new doctor, they just put it in their computer and they can get all of your recent health information. And that prevents a lot of redundancy, a lot of medical errors, a lot of red tape. Um, all kinds of things. And that's just like one example of um, how the rest of the world does it that we can kind of take a page from because we spend a lot of our money and a lot of our healthcare do dollars on administrative things rather than care itself. You are speaking to my soul right now. <laughs> because when I, when I was in the army, right, a, a lot of the time I was a special victim counsel. And so I was representing individual soldiers who were victims of sexual assault or rape. But before that, for the majority of my time in the army, I was either a military prosecutor or I was general counsel for a base. And when you are a JAG, you are an attorney for the government, which is the employer of everybody you're dealing with. So you are a lawyer for a covered entity under HIPAA. I am <laughs> all too familiar with the way that we uh, have created red tape around medical records. So yeah. And a lot of it is important for protection, but if a person is giving consent by giving you their record, then there shouldn't be a reason that you don't have access to it. So I think that um, we definitely have a lot of room to grow in that area for sure. Absolutely. That, that's a, actually a great one. And it, you probably know the stats better than me, but a substantial number of hospitalizations in ERs are the result of doctors prescribing things that conflict with another medication and they don't know the patient is on the other medication because there's no digital record of what the patient is on. So if the patient forgets to mention something, voila, you've now been sent to the ER because of a, I mean, there's all these problems that emerge, not to mention the cost, the time that is lost, having to pay administrators to manage all the paperwork because we don't have digital records. Exactly. And it's passed on to consumers in the form of higher premiums. It's just, it's brutal. That's a, that's a great. Yeah. You summed it up very, very eloquently. And um, that's just one example of the things that get lost in translation. Yeah. Um, and medical errors are leading cause of death, which is why um, I'm always telling everybody to stay out of the hospital when the new residents come in, because huh. even more errors are made. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for for my future reference, uh, what what day do the residents come July into the first. house? Try yeah, not to got it. Uh, <laughs> I will I will stay super safe and drive five miles under the speed limit starting on July first. When do they get good at medicine? Like September, October? When very, can I very quickly, honestly. Like okay. yourself, three four months, and it's more becomes more of a well oiled machine. But those first two weeks are are pretty chaotic. So I wanted to ask about you know, what drew you to USC in the beginning? Because, you know, I was, I was joking that you're in the Jim Jones Kool-Aid drinking stage of your USC career, like fully bought into the, to the yeah. Trojan identity. Uh, what was it that sort of grabbed a hold of you early on and, and got you on this Trojan for life path? Yeah, so it's actually a great time to ask me this question because now everybody's been there. So the town and gone ballroom where we had 100 days was the room that I was taking to on admitted students day. 
And so I come into this ballroom with like all these crazy chandeliers and like this opulent decor. And then the band comes in and they start playing the fight song. And you could just feel like the energy and like everybody drinking the Kool-Aid and you're in this environment that's like kind of the most extra USC gets. And that was the day that I was like, I'm going here for school. Um, And I haven't looked back since, but I think even though you say like, you know, it's this Kool-Aid and like people say Trojan family, this blah, blah, blah. Like there's been so many instances in my life where it has really just like shown up for me in different ways that you would never expect. And I think it's like a very, very deep ingrained bond. And it's harder to feel that as an MBA, but I'm sure you do when you go to recruiters and they went to USC, they, they take an, a little bit of an extra step. They'll meet with you for an extra 10 minutes or always respond to your email. And that's kind of like a smaller example, but if you're in an airport, like there's so many people I've met on trips that I'm wearing one piece of USC clothing. And like, it is the topic of conversation in a way that I've never seen another school kind of connect people. And it's, it's really just like kind of been a common theme in my life where I keep coming back because I don't think anywhere would have made me feel supported and made me as supported and made me into the person I am today. Like I came into USC um, as a spring admit, which means like they say you were just as good as an applicant, but like probably not because I could have been let in for fall. And, <laughs> but it, you know, they, they took a chance on me. I had like, okay, grades in high school, like they weren't the best, but I, cause I was, you know, playing sports and like, you know, my attention was drawn all over the place, but they, they saw something in me and like have supported me like every step of the way. And I've really never felt like a number. Like I've known my advisors by names. They reach out to me. Like, I feel like I, you get really taken care of and like, supported in this school not just by the administration but by the alumni and the people that you meet um my one of my scholarship donors that I've known since my first year has like literally connected me with so many people in medicine that I've met through residency like just you know like really crazy opportunities have come my way from being a Trojan and I I drink the Kool-Aid because I've seen it prove itself out what did you play in high school uh water polo and swimming ah but you you did not get into USC on a fake water polo scholarship. You no, in the regular that was, way. <laughs> that that was not me. But you know, I had morning practices at five a.m. Like anytime I want to look at my computer screen, chlorine would come into my face and it would hurt. So like studying just like was something I did, but it was not like my priority. And so like I had okay grades, like I got into USC, but they they weren't like what took what it took to get into med school. So. You were getting up at 5 a.m. or you had practice uh, at 5 a.m.? I, I had to be there at 5 a.m., like in the water. And so he would lock the door if you were, if you weren't, you weren't in the water. So you're getting <laughs> up at like 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot of discipline. That's for sure. And, and probably doing homework until 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. Because home, schools in America are homework obsessed. Yes, yes, they are. So you're sleeping four or five hours a night. How many nights, how many days a week did you have practice? Every day, like well, not weekends, but unless we had games or tournaments, which would happen too. But yeah, like twice a day, pretty much every day. Like I'd have a 5 a.m. to uh, seven practice. And then I come again after school for two more hours, two and a half more hours. So it was wow. a lot, yeah. That's a tough road. That's a, that's a tough road. Um, so then you go to USC, you get your bachelor's, you get your master's, uh, and then you start working at 
a place called the, am I pronouncing it right? The gear center. Yes. Tell me so, about the gear center and, and why you wanted to work there and what, what did you work on? Yeah. So I started working there the first summer, um, after I began medical school. Um, and the reason I want to do that was I've always been in like student government and we really, and was really interested in like activism within the, the university, but, um, and, in high school and high school, but I was really interested in like taking those principles and kind of like actually making real concrete change in society. And so the Garrison center for, um, health system sciences is really focused on like improving like the legislation. Um, and some of these frustrations that we have, like we talked about with the healthcare system, whether it's, you know, the health records and the whole, a whole gamut of things. And they have a, a lot of um, support staff to kind of uh, make that happen and are really connected with Sacramento and with the LA government. And so I thought it was just like a really cool opportunity to learn from some of those people doing that work. Um, and I was lucky enough to become a part of the street medicine program through that. Um, and what street medicine is, is that they basically focus on delivering healthcare to the unsheltered population where they are. And I came into the department at a really unique time because it was just being founded. We had just brought somebody over from Philadelphia to USC. And so it was a department of one person. And so I got in on the ground floor of kind of the creating the vision for it and which patients we would serve and where we would do our work. And um, having been in LA and working with like, you know, and surrounded by this population, I had a lot of um, I think misconceptions about kind of what their environment's like and what kinds of things they're able to access. Um, perhaps most commonly, like I shared with a lot of people, you think that most of them have mental health issues, but that's only around like 25, 30%. The majority of the population is there because the housing prices in LA have just, you know, skyrocketed so astronomically so quickly. And you know, in New York, there is a large homeless population, but they're not unsheltered. They have enough shelters for them for the most part. So I think there's a huge difference in the kinds of barriers they face. And I got to learn a lot more about that. Sorry that that was a very long-winded answer. But. No, long is good. This is interesting stuff because I think you're, you know, you're touching on things that a lot of people maybe don't think about, right? Because we've had this explosion in the number of homeless people in Los Angeles and in other major cities around the country, but there hasn't been an increase in the number of people suffering from mental health issues, and there hasn't been an increase in the number of people who are addicted to drugs. So why is it that there are more homeless people? And you hit on it. It's that people cannot afford to live in what is supposedly the richest country in the world, but the people who live here can't afford to live here. And so they wind up, literally, they're homeless and they find a way to clean themselves up enough to go to work at a job where they don't earn enough money to have an apartment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's very, very hard stuff. But um, did you have any exposure to that side of life in the city before starting work at the gear center? A lot of it just through being at USC and like being co-located like by Skid Row. Like I, you know, I worked in some, some clinics that were like, you know, right off of it. And we saw patients like that, but I think that it's not just a misconception I had, but um, but many, many physicians have not having, not going to where they're at and seeing them in a clinic. You really don't get the full picture of like what kinds of environments they're in, what they have access to. Like, for example, we like prescribe the medications that need to be refrigerated, but like they're not going to have a fridge and um, just kind of little things like that, but they, they add up to, you know, reducing people's life expectancies that live on the street by 20 years. So like, 
it goes from it's in the mid 80s to around the mid 60s just because you're homeless and that's like literally the only factor so it's huge and I mean you were in the military so a lot of veterans are affected by it and it's it's really really sad so it was it was amazing to do what I could there and we worked on a lot of policy changes um and I'm happy to say now that there's funding for um street medicine so that you can get funded for delivering care on the street because before that was not allowed to be built so that was a huge win Um, and they're making steps in the right direction that's fascinating stuff and um there may be we're, we're about to switch tracks there may be a podcaster who is professional and skilled enough to make a transition from helping the homeless with their health care to hyping the Vegas trip. I am, <laughs> I am not that podcaster. I am not going to try. So I'm just going to embrace the awkward transition to, all right, everybody, we have a trip to Las Vegas coming up at the end of April. So let's get ready for that. We've, uh, we've got a block of rooms at Harris. I think that there are still rooms available. Please book a room if you're interested. Uh, if you don't want to stay at Harrah's, I think Harrah's is going to be fine. I'm going to be at Harrah's. I know there's fancier hotels, but it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to be around your classmates. It's going to be a last hurrah before graduation. And uh, April just told me that uh, Tiesto, Alesso, and Zed are all going to be in town, and people are going to be going to those music shows. It's a big weekend. The NFL draft is going on. There's apparently a, a fight going on, uh, an organized fight, not just people randomly fighting. <laughs> no, not Will Smith. Not Will Smith. Not no. That's that's the fight. Will Smith and Chris Rock are going to be fighting at the MGM. Uh, but it's going to be a really fun trip, and I would really encourage people to sign up for the Vegas trip. Get your room booked. Put your information on the Google sheet, and uh, it's it's six hundred bucks for the room at Harrow's. It's something like that. You're not going to miss the six hundred bucks, but you will miss the opportunity to spend this time with your classmates and have a really good time out in Las Vegas. So. Everybody sign up for the Vegas trip. Uh, April, you're going to Vegas, right? 100%. I will be there, and I'm very stoked about it. It's our last time taking a trip together, probably, before the end of the year, so I wouldn't miss it. Are you staying at Harrah's, or are you staying someplace nice? I'm not staying at Harrah's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, where, where are you staying? Uh, at the Cosmo. Oh, that's a nice one. I've never stayed at the Cosmo, but it's a nice, I've been in it. It's a nice one. I have never stayed at Harrow's. I am staying at Harrow's. I wanted to be in the block of rooms with our classmates and be as close to them as possible. And so it's, it's going to be a good time. Um, we're going to do some fun questions with you, April. All right. All right. So here are the fun questions. I got to come up with some new fun questions because I'm, I'm sure that the guests at some point are going to anticipate this and give me non-spontaneous answers, but hopefully you have not prepared at all for these questions. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, honestly, just, I hate scary movies. So um probably like what is the one with the two twins the little girls oh uh the shining yeah i know it's supposed to be the one of the best movies of all time but i absolutely hated it because i hate anything scary so that's me i think it's a fair answer i mean if you hated the experience of watching it haunted um, me (laughs) i guess 
it's supposed to produce a reaction. That's what art is supposed to do, they say. But if the reaction is, boy, I really hate this. <laughs> um, I like The Shining, but I understand someone who is just like, nope, I am not about this at all. No thanks, not interested. All right, music that you like that you are embarrassed to like. Probably Taylor Swift. Everybody's, why, why be embarrassed about loving our think- eternal queen, Taylor Swift? Thank living you. legend taylor swift she's literally getting an uh, honorary doctorate from nyu this year so i'm stoked for her um and she's speaking at their graduation so i'm a bit bitter but i think like i would not have been embarrassed like 10 years ago but i still like use her songs as like therapies so i think i should probably grow out of that phase and move on with my life but i still love her she still has no. a special in my heart no hang on to it Hang on to it. She's a living oh, legend. I'm an answer. I love it. She, I think like four of the five people that I've had on have said Taylor Swift. And it's like, no, you can you can be out and proud as a Taylor Swift fan. There's no shame in this. Thank you for saying that. Um, I've got like 30 Taylor Swift songs on my phone right now. Taylor Swift is amazing. All right. The last book you read that was not for school. Um, the White Coat Investor. <laughs> What is the white coat investor? It's a book about how to manage your money in residency, which I thought was relevant. And it's actually very useful. So I learned that I need to buy all kinds of insurance because people will love to sue me. Oh, yeah. Uh, And a multitude of different environments. And so I am now aware of that. So I think it was a very useful read. Does the institution that you're doing the residency with, and we'll get to where you're going to end up planning to do your residency. I don't know if you know yet. Um, does the institution not pay for any of the insurance? So that's, that's what the book taught me. Like, that's what I thought going into it. And they do pay for your insurance of mistakes you make, like in the hospitals that they like have you training in, but like, let's say I'm on a plane and they call for like a doctor on board and I do something that's like, not like the standard of care, which probably would happen because I'm on a plane and don't have all the things I need. Like I could get sued in that environment and the cover, the hospital's insurance would not cover me because I'm not in a hospital. Ah, got Mm -hmm. it. Got it. All right. So you grew up in LA, college all the way through in LA, outside LA. What's the, your favorite place you've been? Um, My favorite place that I would like consider living in is New York. I go there like six times a year. I'm obsessed with it. I lived there for a month in August and did a rotation um, and try to go there as much as I can. But in terms of like my favorite place I've ever been, I would say probably um, I went to Mexico City on um, Dia de los Muertos. And that was absolutely awesome. Like I went, like I was, my parents, cause they're in the liquor business were invited by a tequila company and they had this event and everybody did the face painting. And then we went inside a bull rink and there was like a whole concert and it was just like, so cool. So, and I love Mexico city in general. So I think that would be up there with the big parade. Yeah. You know, they did not used to do the parade. Yeah, it started because of James Bond. Yes, it was started because it's in the opening scene of a James Bond movie. Yep. And Mexico City's officials were like, that's a great idea. We should actually do that. We should do that for real. And then they did it. Now they do it every year. They went like the year after that, that movie came out. So. That's fantastic. Um, all right. A place that you want to go that you haven't been yet. 
oh so many places i'm obsessed with traveling japan for sure um vietnam i've been to japan it's uh croatia um uruguay because i was just in buenos aires and everybody was like you need to go to uruguay and um patagonia excellent that's a diversity of places you know patagonia you're out in the middle of nowhere and japan you're pretty much always in the middle of a giant city yeah i like variety and i have like the biggest travel travel bug like anytime i get three days off i'm like on a plane somewhere uh presumably there will be some time for that after you're done with medical school so let's talk about medical school and how you get into it and what you do when you're there and what you do after. So yeah. uh, medical school admissions, let's start there. Yes. It's extremely competitive. I don't know if any pre-med students will listen to this podcast, but I do have a lot of insight considering that I was on the admissions committee. Um, but the main, there's like two main things, which is like your GPA and your undergrad and your MCAT score, which, you know, speaks for itself, but there is like a lot of required courses, unlike, you know, applying to your MBA or applying to law school, like you can be any major and do like anything you want, as long as you take the tests that they indicate, but med school is not like that. There's a lot of prerequisite requirements, chemistry, biology, physics, um, you know, language requirements for some schools, math requirements for some schools, and then um, all of that is usually pretty hard and affects your GPA. Um, and those are the kinds of subjects that are on the MCAT exam. And so the timeline for it is, is pretty tough to achieve um, while you're like all in college. So I would say like probably the hardest thing I did was finishing everything in, in time to apply and go straight from undergrad. Um, Cause although I did the masters, it was during my senior year. So I did that all in four years. Um, and the reason it's so hard is that you need to take all of those courses and your exam before the end of your junior year, because by the end of your junior year, you're applying. So it's essentially like all needs to be done within three years of school. And so you're taking like at least two science classes at a time to, to make that a reality plus studying for that exam. So it's a pretty intense timeline that I often don't recommend to people and say, take an extra year off so that you can like give everything the attention it needs. Um, suffice it to say, after my MCAT, I went on a bender. Um, <laughs> that's when I went to Mexico City. And um, I also, oh no, I went to San Miguel. And then I also went to Coachella. And I had my 21st birthday the day after my MCAT. So yeah, that was a lot. And <laughs> then you apply to medical school. And that admission process um, has changed since I did it because of COVID. But essentially, you apply to the programs, you get invited to interviews. Um, the application's pretty rigorous. You write like everything you've ever done um, and, a, and a personal statement. And then for those interviews, you, need to, you, you used to have to go to the schools physically. And so I did a lot of flying around the country my senior year and it's all on your dime. They don't pay for you to fly out. They, um, don't pay for you to stay, which I know is very different than business. Um, and then, yeah, you hopefully get an acceptance or two and decide. And, you know, that's like the best case scenario. 
well, I don't know what business schools are paying for people's plane tickets. I, I did a couple interviews that I needed a plane ticket. Nobody paid for my plane ticket, but yeah, sorry, not business schools, but even residencies, like that same thing goes on for a job and you have to pay for yourself. So everything is kind of out of your own pocket in medicine, which is unfortunate. Well, they get, they get the tuition is low, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because so NYU was actually the first medical school to announce that tuition will be free. Um, and that was my second year of med school. And I actually turned down NYU to go to USC. So that burned. <laughs> my, my, I, that might've been the one moment that I really wavered from my commitment to the Trojan family uh, was, was, was that news. But I should tell people you're doing this interview with a, a winter jacket on because it's cold and your heat is broken. On days like this, do you have any regrets about being in LA? Oh, absolutely not. I like no. being in New York for like three days, but it's I I think I it was really good for me to do the rotation there for like a month, even though it was in August and it was warm. Like kind of like the whole atmosphere of New York having to kind of carry everything with you and like you know schlep everything to and fro and. Um, kind of the intensity of medicine there. I mean, you're really grateful that I had chosen to stay in LA. So it sounds like from what you're saying, by the time I show up at college, I basically have to know if I want to be a doctor. There's not a way to like get to junior year and squeeze it in. No, absolutely not. I mean, you can definitely do it there's, there's other ways of doing it later, but you just have to take more time. Like there is something called a post back where you go back and you just do the science courses that you need to be pre-med. And that usually takes a year post-college. And so there's ways of doing it after if you decide later on, but to, to go straight from undergrad to med school, if you didn't decide by like the end of your first semester is, is pretty impossible. Does anybody not go straight from undergrad? Yeah, many people. What I did is, is not common anymore. Most people take a year off um, before they go to medical school at the minimum, um, if not more time to, you know, do research, volunteer, come from a different industry. There was a guy that was in my class that used to be a DJ. And then um, there was another one that was a, an executive at Disney and his daughter got cancer. And then he decided to like go into medicine. There was a guy that was a football player at the NFL. Um, so all kinds of careers, but it's definitely like, you can't just like decide within the same year and go like there's a lot of steps to take. And the test that you take to get in is the MCAT. Yes. And I have heard that the average MCAT score for doctors in the 1970s would not even get you into medical school today. But no. That is how competitive it has become. It, it, I'm, <laughs> I did well. Like you, you don't stay at USC unless you like, you know, kill yourself for that test. And even then it's like, you know, kind of up to chance and what questions you've got land in your, in your lap. Um, I was lucky to do well enough to be able to stay in LA, but I was like mentally prepared to have to leave and go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, the, the road not traveled, you, we're happy to have you in LA. We're happy to have you at USC, but the road not traveled. What are the places you might've looked at going outside LA if you had to leave LA? Yeah, so I'm, I mentioned New York and like moving to NYU. And I think that was the one that I considered most seriously. Um, and I re- recognize that me living in the South probably just wouldn't work out too well. So I 
next that option and then there were some other options in California like Irvine and um and NorCal but for me like I recognized that the reason I was able to kind of maintain some semblance of a social life while also being pre-med was that I had my family like near me to kind of like my mom would like meal prep my me food and like come help me like kind of do basic life so that I could kind of maintain both halves in my life and stay fulfilled socially and within school and I knew that I would not be able to do that in medical school if I didn't have them nearby so like my family was a big part of my journey getting there and I was like if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of a thing (laughs) so you you get through organic chemistry and all the other pre-med courses and you get your top tier GPA and your top tier MCAT score and you clear all the hurdles and you, you defeat the fire monster at the end of the Marine commercial and you finally get into medical school. Uh, what's the program actually like once you get in medical school? Um, it's more intense than anything you picture. You think doing the MCAT is, is a hurdle, but um, they compare it to drinking water out of a fire hose. And that's the best analogy that I've heard. For four uh, consecutive years, just nonstop. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is just like, you've never processed and, you know, digested that much information that quickly ever in your life. And it is so overwhelming because you realize that the way that you've studied your whole life, whether it's like making flashcards or quizlets or whatever it is you used to do is just like not efficient enough to get that much information in your head that quickly. And so, you know, you go through all these iterations of taking notes and all these things and you realize like even that's not efficient enough. And every way that you used to learn has to be like, you know, deconstructed and changed. And I think that that's like kind of the biggest challenge of medical school is um, really just like learning how you learn. And I think people always like in the MBA are like, you know, like, how are you like, so like aware of like, you're able to respond back and ask a question to the professor so quickly. And I, I wouldn't say that it's, I'm any more intelligent. It's just that I've really learned how to do school and how to process things that quickly. And I've never stopped doing that. And I, it's like, becomes like a skill, like anything else that you build over time. And so um, I'm just like able to learn things really, really quickly because you have no choice but to do that or like if you need to survive basically. <laughs> so it starts with two years in the classroom, right? Yeah. What kind of classes are you taking? Um, so it's how it's systems based. So what that means is like, you'll do like the pulmonary system, which is the lungs and then the cardiovascular system, which is the heart. And so each system that you go into, you know, you learn the physiology of it and then the pathology. So that's how it goes right. And then how it goes wrong. And then you learn the pharmacology. So what medications affect it. And then you learn um, the you know, the cell biology. So you look at like microscope slides of like how those cells work and function and what goes in and out of them down to like, you know, like the sodium and potassium level of things. And then you go back out kind of macro about how these, each of these systems you've learned about connect. Um, And you have like kind of uh, skills exams where you learn how to practice listening for like the the defects that you learned about um, on people and then you have anatomy. So you literally go into a cadaver lab and take that organ, sorry to be disgusting, out of somebody's body and like dissect it and really see it for yourself. So kind of you do that process over and over again for all of these different systems in your body um, and layer that information 
on top of each other. And each block, you'll take an exam on kind of all of that combined. So it's the structure of the classes is a lot of lectures and reading followed by a lot of practical exercises where you're actually going to put yeah. this into effect before we put you into the next two years, which is the clinical part. And for the changing a lot too, though. Yeah. Um, now with like recorded lectures in Zoom, I think they're realizing that the value of doing lectures in person. So med school was always recordings based. Like you didn't have to go to class ever like mm. before COVID. So we, we often, most people didn't go to class anymore because again, the efficiency thing, like taking notes while you're watching it is like much more efficient than rewatching it again. And so you realize that going to class is not like the best way to learn and you watch everything in three times speed. You get a Google Chrome extension and you eventually learn how to listen that fast. And, um, but it's kind of very interesting because I think now the, that med schools are appreciating that they're doing a lot more things in person that are about digesting and like breaking down and putting back together the information rather than having people come in for the same lecture and giving it every single year after year when there's not really much change that goes on. So it's moving towards that direction across the country. And for the, the pace of the workload, in law school, people are always surprised to hear that there basically are no assignments and that at the end of the semester, you take an exam and that's your grade, as opposed to business school where I felt like there were assignments almost constantly, especially first year. Um, do you have work that's due throughout the semester? Is there an exam at the end that is all or most of your grade? What's the structure of it in terms of workload? Yeah, so there is an exam at the end of every block, like those systems that I talked about. Yeah. Um, so we at Keck don't have periodic quizzes and that like allows time to, you know, do your extracurriculars or like all these different, you know, research and clubs people are in. Some other medical schools do it differently and have quizzes, but ours, ours doesn't. And so you're, it's very similar to law school in that sense. But um, unlike, I don't know if law school is like five days a week, but like sometimes we'd come in on weekends, like the school was like around from eight to four almost every day. Yeah. So that's the first two years. The second two years is the clinical portion. Yes. Uh, so what's involved in the clinical portion? So the clinical portion is there's about um, seven core rotations that everybody has to go through. And then from there, you got to personalize it. So everybody, and this kind of varies school by school, but they're generally the same. So everybody does um, medicine, general surgery, OBGYN, um, family medicine, psychiatry. Um, there's one more that I'm missing, um, neurology. And so everybody does all of those. And then um, from there, you have the option to kind of personalize your schedule. So you can either go deeper into one of those topics, or if there's a specialty that's not one of like the basic ones that they think everybody needs to go through, whether that's like, you know, ophthalmology or um, like, let's like a different form of surgery, like ENT, um, all those things you can choose to do um, after you complete the core rotations that you have. Got it. And when you're doing the clinical portion, what are you actually doing during the day? It's not more classroom stuff, right? So it's a, it's a mix. So you are responsible for being there when the residents are there. So you're usually there, depending on the rotation around like 6 a.m., um, or 5.30 sometimes, 5 surgery. And then you go see the patients on your own. You go do a history and physical on your own. You 
act like a doctor, like fully act like a doctor. And then um, once you take in all that information and you come up with your you know, diagnosis, you present all of that to a real physician um, and they will kind of critique you and ask you if you thought about certain things. Um, and that's kind of how you learn and grow um, is kind of doing the whole thing on your own and um, kind of making mistakes along the way because somebody's overseeing you and you can't prescribe anything without it being signed off by somebody that's a graduate medical school. And um, then in the afternoons, usually that there's, there's lectures that you'll go to related to the rotation you're on. Um, and at the end of every rotation, there is an exam um, on the content of that specialty. Got it. And so that's for a typical MD student. Yes. For an atypical MD student like yourself, who's also getting an MBA, what is the schedule of classes in the program for you? How many years is it total? Because you're taking a four-year degree and a two-year degree, and you're doing both of them. Is it yes. six years, is it five years? How much time do you spend in school to do the dual degree? So it's five years, which is like the benefit of doing it together. And the way that it works, I'm glad you asked this question because I get it a lot. And um, you can kind of choose. So you can either choose to do the uh, MBA after the first two non-clinical years, like the classroom years. You take the year off, do the full first year of the MBA, and then have the two subsequent years to finish up your electives. But that's not typically the path that's chosen because um, it's you get graded during your clinical years and you want to, and that like affects your residency placement. And so they recommend not taking time off because you want everything to be really fresh in your mind when you're going through that experience. So what I did was I took off time between my third and my fourth year of medical school. So my two clinical years, and I did the whole first year of the MBA with you guys, um, like was not in medicine at all. Like, you know, taking all the cores and everything like that. And then from there, both schools like so generously, like wave a little bit of the degree requirements um, and count, you know, each other's respective classes towards my degree, um, which has been a big process to like get them to talk because these two schools don't talk very well. Um, but like I did a month less of clinical rotations in my fourth year. And then I, I um, only had to take an additional seven MBA courses in my second year, as opposed to, I'm not sure how many you guys take, but I know it's like about seven a semester or something like that, right? Five a semester. Uh, yeah, depending on whether it's the one and a half unit courses, I'm going to end up taking six this semester and yeah. two of them are the one and a half unit courses. So kind of maybe four courses-ish less, four or five. Yeah. So um, the summer after I finished our first year of the MBA, I did like literally the Monday after I went back into rotations um, and was also taking a summer MBA course because they were online. So I was like, I might as well take advantage of not having to go in person. Um, and also in the spring, I took an extra class as well when we were doing um, core. So I've tried to kind of sprinkle it in um, because during rotations, I can't be in class in the daytime, like I'm working. Um, and usually they'll, you know, let me off around five. So I'm taking all night classes this year, like somebody else that has a full-time job. There is a debate uh, going on about making medical school three years instead of four. What are your thoughts on that? So I think it's, it's there's pros and cons. Like for example, um, NYU already does this. And the way that they go about it is if you already know your medical specialty, um, most of the fourth year is spent like applying to residency and 
dealing with that whole process and auditioning for it um and you know all kinds of red tape to get to the finish line of being accepted by the program that you want and so there is an argument to be had that if you can guarantee a spot for somebody and they already know what specialty they want to do then the fourth year is kind of negligible in a sense um but I think we're far away from that being the reality because if you don't want to stay at the institution that you already call home and they don't already know you, then there isn't really a shot for you to to get in anywhere else, not kind of having all these things in place. So I wouldn't say that it's necessary for the training, but it's necessary for the process that we currently use in America to hire physicians. And so you, you know, you've jumped through all these hurdles to get into medical school. You go through the four-year grind of medical school. Now it's time to start uh, residency. You've got even more stuff in front of you, right? The prize yeah. for winning the pie-eating contest is you get to eat more pie. Yes. Uh, so what is a residency? Let's start there. Huh. Like, what actually is it? So a residency is, so once you graduate medical school. And these are the people in July that I should watch out for, right? Yes. Yes. So when you graduate medical school, you're a doctor by name, but um, that's pretty much it. So you've taken like half your board certification. There's still one more exam to be certified and to prescribe medication um, outside of the hospital you're working at, um, that will take an additional year or two. So you're kind of a doctor with a few handicaps. And the reason for that is that you need to be trained in the specialty of your choosing. And that's what a residency is, is it's really diving deeper into the subject that you're gonna be an expert in. And the amount of time that that consists of depends on what specialty you choose. So for example, I'm doing internal medicine and it's three additional years post-grad, but somebody that's gonna be a neurosurgeon is gonna be seven additional years Postgrad. Oh, wow. Um, and to be fair, it kind of makes sense. The degree of um, knowledge you have to have to cut into somebody's brain and carve it up is a little bit different than medicine, which is kind of something that we've been, you know, building and honing throughout throughout medical school. So it's very like something we're kind of already adept in going into residency in a way that neurosurgery isn't, and it takes a lot more skill to get there. And so you are like a physician, but also a trainee. So you're still you know, have courses to supplement your education. And that's kind of the biggest problem right now is um, all these residencies need to be funded through Congress and Congress hasn't increased the funding for them in a lot of years. And so there's a very, very limited amount of positions in the country to do this kind of training. And so the people that go unmatched and matching means you you get a position in residency. Um, even though there's a physician shortage, we don't have enough spots to train them, even though we're turning them out of medical school. So that's a... De- discussion for a different time but well um, what happens to them they graduate medical school but then they don't get matched so yeah they can't complete the so board certification exactly so they're you know shouldering all this debt and basically they need to figure out what it is in their application that they're deficient in um and work towards it for the whole next year that's one option but it takes a whole year or there is something called the soap process which is on the monday after you match after you find out you don't match um, all of the residencies that have unfilled positions, which might not be in the specialty that you desire to enter, um, like make it known that they have spots. And it's kind of like a mad rush to, to grab one of them and interview for it um, before Friday when the, it's officially locked in. Um, so it's kind of a 
crazy process. I can kind of talk more about the match too, if you want me to. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, the match in internal medicine. You wanted to do internal medicine. Yes. This was the, the desired uh, area, but it sounds like it's a competitive process and you've got to like be a high performer to get into certain specialties. Is that about right? Yeah, so it never really ends. So you take two exams in medical school, which also kind of divide you up with um, how well you do. Um, but also can be an equalizer. Like, let's say you don't go to as great of a medical school. If you do well on those exams, it kind of shows residencies that, you know, you have the chops and can kind of bring you up. So it works both ways. But um, essentially, the way the match process works is that you apply um, to residency programs, and then they offer you interviews. And um, those interviews come in the form of emails like at any time and you want to be on your phone all the time because if you miss the email um, by like 10 minutes like all the slots can be filled up on the days that you're able to go make it so um, that that in itself was crazy and then at the end of the process you rank all of the programs that you interviewed at and then they rank all of the applicants that they interview um, and then there's a, a match algorithm, which I don't know if people are familiar with sorority recruitment, but it's literally the same algorithm. And the way it works is the person applying um, gets preference. So it looks at my number one um, and it looks at their, their list and sees if they want me back. If they do, great, it's a match. If they don't, it moves on to my number two. But let's say that they only have four spots um, and the fourth person that they put on their list doesn't want them back, then it'll drop down to their fifth. And if I happen to be their fifth, then it'll give me the spot. So it kind of goes through this whole algorithmic process to end up with these matches, essentially. Got it. And then you do these years and years of residency. Get paid very little. Um, paid very little. You get paid about um, 60K and work 80 hours a week. So it's like less than 20 an hour. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. The MBA well, you, you, good, you right? got, April, you gotta really <laughs> want to help people to go through all of this. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and then you finally get licensed. Yes. So when you go to law school, right, you go to law school and then you take the bar exam and that's it, you're done. It sounds like there's multiple levels of licensing before you're licensed in medicine. Yeah. Yes. Multiple they call them step exams, so there's multiple steps. So you get to take like two, three, four bar exams. So I've taken two steps and then there's one more. So three steps. Yeah. All right. Well, I got a different kind of test for you coming up because we're going to do a oh, few yeah. more fun questions. This is uh, in honor of hundred days. One of our cut segments, we were, we got, had to cut it for time, but we were going to do family feud with core teams. Love and it. So we're going to do family feud questions with you and we're going to do one survey question. We're going to see if you can answer all of the answers that uh, your fellow average Americans who were accosted at shopping malls by someone from the Family Feud game show. Uh, we'll see if you can guess what they said their answers were. So the question for today's Family Feud is name something in a person's closet that only comes out on special occasions. There are five answers on the board. Let's see if you can guess five things that your 100 fellow average Americans said would only come out on a special occasion in a person's closet. Um, a tux. There we go. There we go. Let's, oh, see, well, if a, yeah. let's see if a tux is on the board. Tux is on the board. All right. So you got one. 
Okay, a long dress. All right, let's see. Is a dress on the board the uh, opposite number of tux? Yes. So you have now covered the number one and two answers on the board. There were 35 people said tux, 26 people said dress. All right. Now, now we're getting into the tough ones. Yeah. Um, so you can take a second to think about it. Maybe brainstorm a little bit as we play the game. You've got three strikes, right? So you can, you yeah. can run out of strikes. I'm going to say heels. All right. Let's say our heels on the board. Number four answer on the board. It's shoes, dress shoes. That's the number four answer on the board. I'll give you that one. Uh, all right. You got the number three and number five. That's what you're searching for. And you don't have any strikes yet. So you're, you're humming along nicely. I'm going to go with. You're like gazing back at your own closet, right? Uh, <laughs> you've got, uh, you've got a fake zoom background up, but I can see your eyes darting behind you as you search for your own closet. What's in my closet? That only like lingerie or something like that. Lingerie. That's yeah. all right. Let's see. Do we have lingerie? Oh no, not lingerie. I would consider that a special I'm, occasion, but apparently, I'm proud of people for apparently your fellow Americans do not consider that <laughs> special enough. Your fellow Americans need to have more fun is what I think. Yeah, um, like a costume. A costume. All right, show me costume. Not a costume. All These right. are good answers, I swear. These That was a good answer. I think costume is a good answer. I think lingerie is a good answer. I think these are all good answers. All right, but you're down to your, fair or unfair, you're down to your last strike and you got to get the number three and number five answers. Maybe think about accessories you might wear. Um, a tie. A tie. All right, let's see. Is a tie on the board? No, it's not on the board. <laughs> um, I will tell you though, yes, because the number one answer is a suit or a tux. I think a tie is implied. So right. I'm going to give you another swing here. Okay. Let's see. Uh, I'll give you the okay, like a diamond it, necklace. All right. Like, let's see. Do we have? Do we have a diamond necklace? Jewelry is on the board. You've got it. Now you've just got the last answer on the board, the number five answer. And for those uh, counting at home, 35 people said tux, 26 said dress, 10 people said jewelry, six people said shoes. So for the, uh, the quants in our class, there are four people who picked this number five answer. Yeah, that's going to be like impossible. I'm going to go with, Wanna, you want to think about it? Maybe brainstorm a little before you answer because this is there's no more freebies. I gave you one freebie. I know you did. You were very generous with me. Um, I'm just going to go with like a fancy coat. A fancy coat. Show me a fancy coat. I think I'm getting this one. No, it is not a fancy <laughs> coat. All right. Let's reveal uh, what four Americans said was something in a person's closet that only comes out on special occasions. It is a shotgun. Oh, I would never have gotten that. But that says good things about me, so I'm, I'm okay with it. Well, you know, 
special occasion. occasion like an a wedding a wedding is a special occasion oh, and yeah. maybe the mall was in arkansas i don't know yeah this is a that. this is a very Amer- this is literally we went to middle america and four people were like i keep a shotgun in my closet not a gun safe I mean, not a gun safe yeah. in my closet and it comes I mean, out my on a special it was I knew my answer was very California based to begin with because I said a coat, which for other people is a regular occasion, but for me is a special occasion. So, yeah. (laughs) Different structure. A gallant effort. And frankly, I think sometimes (laughs) not winning is the better side of the coin because if you had guessed shotgun, I agree. That would be concerning. You might report me. Either either you're Googling (laughs) the answer during the show. Or you have, we have additional questions for the podcast to to (laughs) dig into uh, any of that. But uh, all right, so that's Family Feud. We're now at the end. Uh, So this is time for us to talk about what's next for you after business school and after medical school. You're matched with internal medicine at UCLA, right? Yes, the most ironic of endings for um, Miss Trojan. plot twist (laughs) but you're staying in LA so that's that's good is that that's what you want right you want to be in LA yeah Yeah. Um, I I got I I'm really happy with my choice and I'm happy it worked out so so you're getting the MD you're getting the MBA you're matched with internal medicine you got three years of that ahead of you and um what's the long-term plan after that because you could you could do all that right with just the MD why get the MBA as well so my eventual goal, which could change, um, but I want to do hospital administration and, um, you know, like the CMO, like chief medical officer or CEO, maybe, I don't know, kind of lofty dreams, but um, I think like really having like a strong fundamental understanding of business principles could happen from just like watching and learning, but um I really felt like that was something I needed. And especially um, as a woman, I think it's really hard to kind of get those positions of influence. Um, and now I have a bit more credibility walking into those rooms. So hopefully um, those positions will find me or when I find them, um, I will be the right person for the job. So that's kind of the hope and doing it within a year instead of going back and spending an extra two um, seemed pretty ideal, so. Excellent. So your ultimate goal is to do more than just practice medicine. You want to be in a leadership position yeah. at maybe a, a hospital or a medical school or. Mm-hmm. Cause all my kind of work has been about kind of what needs to change in the health system. And I've realized that um, one of my favorite mentors is this, I'll leave you guys with this quote is um, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu. That's a good quote. Those are words to live by. That's a good quote. April, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us. I think our our classmates are going to learn a lot about the other side of the coin for some of our dual degree students. It was a lot of fun talking to you and uh, best of luck in your residency at UCLA. We will forgive you for betraying us at the very end and going to the arch rival. Uh, But I think you got a bright future ahead of you. And I'm very grateful that you spent some time on the podcast with us to talk about what you're doing in the medical program. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week for the next episode of MBAs Unplugged.